Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Periclou, Periclou, which, as you all know, of course, is Maltese. Achtung, Achtung. Actually, uh, James H. got in touch from Malta to tell this. Thanks to James. Well, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I hope you enjoyed all the extra content we posted after the Chalk Valley History Festival. Yeah, and it was great to see so many of you at the live recording of the podcast. In fact, we're going to do a whole new live show at the Edinburgh Festival, if you fancy coming along. Wednesday, August the 7th. There'll be giant maps, Nazi greatcoats, our will recreate the parachute drop into Arnhem. Hold on. Not to be missed. <laughs> I didn't agree you didn't know that. that bit, did you? <laughs> right, the show's at 1.45 in the afternoon. Uh, that's quarter to two in the old money. It's £14 a ticket, £12 for concessions. And you can either book tickets by going to assemblyfestival.com it's assemblyfestival, all as one word, dot com, or by calling the box office on 0161 623 I have to say, Having uh, gone to Chalk Valley, to your festival, James, I'm quite interested in you coming to the festival that I'm really familiar with um, at the Fringe. And uh, Yeah, I haven't been up to Edinburgh for literally years and years and years, so I'm looking forward to great, it, I must say. brilliant, excellent. Right, OK, we're going to start with any other business, if that's OK. Before we get started proper, a lot of correspondence from the podcast First Army Twitter division. Uh, we said that Colditz prisoner and Conservative MP Airy Neve was killed by the IRA. In fact... He was killed by the Irish National Liberation Army. Thanks to Dave M for spotting that. Apologies, that's a bit uh, people's front of Judea, but there we go. Also, on the subject of uh, Colditz, we mentioned a board game that was popular in the 70s and 80s. Well, guess what? Ian Wayhill contact- contacted us to say it's been re-released as Escape from Colditz Castle, World War II. That's interesting, isn't it? They've had to change the title to explain it. In the 70s, everyone <laughs> knew exactly what Colditz was. Now you need to be told so it's you're a castle. So you're going to be getting um, an edition of that, Al? You think, well, I might play do. It, give I, it a go. I might do, get the action but man do, do you, Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I just wonder whether it's completely rubbish now or not. It probably is. And, you know, I think computer games are probably... Uh, um, urinated on the chips of board games by now, haven't they? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, we'll, Actually, we'll I've, got a, I've got a Nazi should, board maybe game. Maybe we should do a special edition where we play it. <laughs> well, maybe we should. And I've got a Nazi board game, which I've never played, and it's in really mint condition. Of course, of course you have. Of course I have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which was sold to me by Rob Schaefer. It was just so irresistible, ah, right. I just had to have it. And, um, and what do you have to do? I don't know, but it's got lots of sort of different bits in it. And basically, you can conquer the world, obviously. But, um, right, OK. But... Um, yeah, I've never sort of got down to the nitty gritty, but apparently it was incredibly popular in the in the era of the Third Reich. Oh, well, that's a surprise, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, recently we offered some book recommendations for the summer, and it seems to stir quite a lot of conversation. We mentioned Farley Mowat's and No Bird Sang, which prompted Alex Black to send us a picture of his first edition, bought the day after its wedding. So thank you for sending that in, Alex. Yeah. Mark, who has the splendid Twitter handle at Spitfire1418, that doesn't work, does it? No, anyway, doesn't matter. Who cares? I was trying to think. Uh, were there any Spitfires around three years after um, Agincourt? <laughs> yeah. well, anyway, he pointed out that all our book recommendations were from an Allied point of view. Anything you would recommend from the German perspective? He asks. Well, yeah, I suppose. Um, the trouble is, is all the German memoirs I've I've read. They're kind of they're very wordy. They're very earnest. They just they're just not great literature. I mean, there's obviously this Guy Sayers book, isn't there? Forgotten Soldier. Yes, it's a novel, yeah, yeah. strictly speaking. 
Yeah, um, yeah, which which is sort of um, which is worth a read, but it's kind of sort of fantastical. Some of it, isn't it? And and you don't really you you because it's been queried a lot, hasn't it? Because he's he's an Alsatian German, isn't he? He's a French he's French Frank French German or German. That's French, right. From your point of view, joins up as an enthusiastic Nazi, and and I remember the the book ends with him getting home and then going, well, don't worry, French, don't worry about any of that. <laughs> and it, <laughs> Oh right, is it that? Is it, is, uh, yeah. is it that? Simple? I made it all up as well. And, yeah, yeah. And, and then there's Iron Coffins, which is a really good book about being um, being in U-boats. But when I was, what was I? I was researching War in the West One, uh, yeah. and I was looking into that, and it tu- it's just it just doesn't tally at all. It's it's right. really you know you, you cannot make. I mean the the, the classic. The, you cannot the make ha- the the facts fit the. Yeah, the story. The, the story. But the classic is the Hans von Luck um, account, isn't it? Which, which. Yeah, but which, again, it's not great literature. It's just, it's just a, it's just a colourful memoir. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it, um, you sort of think, mm, were you really at the centre of all these incredible events? Um, yeah. Are you sure? And 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 he's 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 a sort of character. He comes across as this sort of swashbuckling good German. Uh, the Desert War was an honourable war character. Yeah, and you wonder, um, you know, how much, how much. Uh, yeah, and you realise the futility of the Eastern campaign. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, but he yeah. knew Peter Cadet Adams, who we had on a little while ago. He, um, yeah, he he knew Hans von Luck quite well in the sort of late seventies and eighties. Right, and he said that Hans von Luck was so suave and urbane, yeah. and very cool individual, and could drink literally anyone under the table, no problem at all. Loved the ladies. Um, and just a sort of bit of bit of a sort of ex-German Julio. I bet he was brilliant at that board game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'd be fantastic. There's one other as well. It's the Heinz Knocker um, diary. I, I flew for the Führer, uh, and I've got to say that is that would have been very very close to my list. I've got to say that that's yeah. a really amazing book. But there's just not that many really good bits of literature. I think that are written yeah. by the Germans. Yeah. I mean, God, Heyer Hermans. Have you ever come across that? Yeah, uh, no. Whoa, don't bother. I mean, it's really, really hard work. <laughs> That's a boring book. <laughs> Although he did amazing things, which is kind of what yeah. makes you think, think, how can you make what you did sound so boring when it was amazing? Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who kind of blew up Piraeus and stuff and yeah. set up the Wilderzau. And anyway, we digress. Yeah. yeah. Um, James got in touch, someone called James. He got in touch to re- recommend uh, Flashman authors quartered safe out here. George MacDonald Fraser's sa- quartered safe out here. Yeah, which is amazing. That is an incredible book, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and again, that, you know, God, I mean, there's so many you could put on there. But Quarter Safe Out Here is one of the really, truly great... In fact, actually, I'm a bit embarrassed we didn't put that on because that is yeah. really, really brilliant. I love that yeah. book. It's just yeah. utterly fantastic. And, from, from and it, start, it, it starts with that really amazing thing about um, when the when uh, the atom bombs dropped and him going, yeah. that Japanese guy who, who, who wouldn't come out of his foxhole wasn't ready to surrender... Yeah. wasn't defeated didn't think the war was over as he tried to kill me and my mates and and so we were all delighted when it happened and, you, and to actually read that read in sort of yeah. t- in tooth and claw as it was is really i think really actually really arresting now with our, from our perspective it's a fascinating book yeah and gw wrote to point out the extraordinary biography of zeno the anonymous author of the cauldron he actually wrote the arnhem based novel while in wormwood scrubs serving a life sentence for murder worth a little <laughs> internet investigation on that one maybe you know a little bit about this guy don't you yeah 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 he was it yes he was pathfinder squadron i mean it basically it's 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 one of these thin thin novelizations you know it's basically what happened to him and yes he was he wasn't a he wasn't 
a, a good man when he's dressed him at station. <laughs> right, now, um, now you may, uh, listeners, you may remember James describing the extraordinary uh, smoking cobras. I think it's, it's smoking with a G, but actually it's smoking cobras, if we're going to get yeah. this right. The smoking like, with, with an apostrophe. Smoking with an apostrophe. It's like, yeah, Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos. Smoking cobras, an army of Brazilians... Brazilian people, by the way, you smutty lot, who fought in Italy in exchange for the Americans, building them as steelworks back home. Well, Mark Gill's got in touch to say, my father-in-law remembers the parade they had upon their return in Avenida San Yao, a central street in the middle, I hope I got that right, in the middle of Sao Paulo. He was a Cub Scout, along with many other groups attending that day. He says now, though, most Brazilians don't even know they took part in World War II. Well, we've got to change that. <laughs> <laughs> with this podcast that yeah. set that as we well. will conquer as a windmill to tilt at yeah brilliant <laughs> okay now prepare yourselves and cover the ears of the young put your lunch to one side this next correspondence is extraordinary if a little disgusting I talked about Monty's autograph book recently and we, we put some pictures up and we had a lovely response to that and this prompted Mr Hyde to get in touch um, whether that he's writing it on behalf of Mr Jekyll we don't know my granddad told me of a friend who was a rating on HMS Faulkner, the destroyer that took Monty to Normandy. This chap stole one of Monty's craps out of the heads, dried it, varnished it, and kept it as a souvenir. <laughs> Different to an autograph, I guess. Well, wow. Not, what do you say well, about we're that? The, we're not at that level of merch yet, are we, James? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, there are limits. I've got my brick from the Berghoff, and that's as far as I'm going. Yeah, we're not, not that kind of brick, either. We're, <laughs> We're not going to do a hashtag to win a We Have Ways turd. turd. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who got in touch. Remember to use the hashtag We Have Ways on Twitter. Now then, how about this? 50 years ago, they put a man on the moon, but we've gone one better. We Have Ways to Make You Talk today takes one bold step for podcast kind. I'm at Battle HQ here in Chiswick, but James, get this. James, and he's got his Nazi ball game out in front of him, I'm sure. James <laughs> is at the Eagle's Nest Bechtesgarten, high in the Bavarian mountains. Once it was the exclusive preserve of high-ranking Nazis, the sort of Hollywood hills of, of uh, National Socialism, but it's relaxed its membership policy, and they, they've let James in. James, t- t- what's it like? <laughs> what, what, tell us. It is, it is the most stunningly beautiful place. And in fact, actually, I'm not at the Eagle's Nest, uh, which is actually properly known as the Kelstein House. And yep. that is towering above me. I can't quite see it right now, but when I was having my breakfast this morning, I could. Um, I'm, I'm gazing at the Untersberg Mountains. So the, the, the Kelstein House was built for Hitler for his 50th birthday yep. in April 1939 by Martin Berman. And, I got taken to the pub for my 50th birthday. Yeah, well, you know, what can you do? <laughs> anyway, the amazing thing is, is, is they had to, to, to get there, to, to get to this high... Um, which which is is sort of on a it's on a sort of outcrop below the 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 uh, uh, Hofer Gull, which is this sort of big mountain here. Mm. And uh, to get there, they had to create what was then the highest road in Europe to do it. And then, and then they couldn't quite get to the last bit, so they then had to dig a tunnel, kind of 120 yards into the mountain, and and then create an elevator shaft 100 meters deep. Anyway, they finally took Hitler up there. He looked around and said, I don't much care for heights, and came back down again, and only ever went up there another couple of times. 
<laughs> but Eva Braun loved it. And yeah. um, um, Fagerlein, who married, um, who, who was an SS officer who was um, uh, murdered by the Nazis in the last days of yeah. the war in Berlin, yeah. he, uh, he married Eva Braun's sister and had his wedding yeah. reception up there. And there's sort of pictures there and stuff. It is yeah. the most amazing thing. But, but down below on the actual Ober Salzburg, which overlooks Berkisgarden, that's what, that was sort of you know, Nazis on the hill, really. Um, and Hitler first came here in, I think it was 1923. He, he was friends with this guy called Dietrich Eckhart, and Eckhart was this sort of free thinker, boozer, yeah. um, sort of libertine, but right wing libertine. And um, yeah. uh, and Hitler sort of became slightly enthralled to him. And Eckhart took him to this part and said, "Look, this is the this is the most amazing part. You know, here you can really think about things. You can work out some really bad ideology." And Hitler yeah. went, "Yeah, you know, I, I absolutely get it. And, and let's go for big hikes." Um, and, and then after he was uh, released from Landsberg Prison, he kind of continued writing the second part of um, Mein Kampf, and he had yeah. the uh, the Kampfhausel, which was this you know he was impoverished, and he he had this little wooden hut in the hills, which the remains of which you can still see. Uh, and every morning he he used to sort of walk around to this. Um, uh, to this this sort of mountain inn, right beneath the uh, the Hofer Goal, where the Eagle's Nest now is, and um, he'd have hot chocolate and a thing called Vintbeutel, which is a sort of incredibly rich um, pastry with ice cream and cream and berries and stuff like that. Uh, and actually, wow. obviously, um, because I'm here and I brought my family here on family, that's exactly what we <laughs> did yesterday. Um, ah. I took them to the very same place, and you've still got the requisition notice from Martin Borman on the wall because it's owned by the same family, and you can still oh, have Vintbeutel just like Adolf used to like it. Because it, it, it was a sort of strip, wasn't it, of, of all, the, all the Nazi brass had houses going down the hill or up the hill, depending on... And the more important you were, the closer you were to the top. And, exactly. And so so, so Hitler buys a thing called House Wackenfeld, um, and he rented it to start off with. And then Mein Kampf was so successful, once he became successful politically, yeah. that from the proceeds, from the royalties, he then bought it and converted it into the Berghof. And what's really interesting is Goering bought the house above him on, the, on a knoll, which is where <laughs> this hotel I'm staying in is built. Yeah. So where I was having breakfast this morning was actually the, the actual patio bit where the breakfast was, was on the exact spot where the Goering house was. And then Martin Borman, because he didn't, couldn't bear Goering, they all hated each yeah. other's guts like crazy. Yeah. He then bought the house and created a house between Goering and the Berghof. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, Speer had a house a little bit further down and there were huge sort of SS barracks and stuff um, yeah. and now it's a bus park so that you can go to the Kalstein house um, and, and there was the Platterhof which was the sort of hotel for people, but people you know if you were sort of visiting and you were kind of quite high powered this is where you'd yeah. stay in the Platterhof most of that's gone but a little bit late and it's now turned into a sort of documentation centre for kind of because the obviously they had, to knock, they had to knock it down because they don't it's got to it can't be a shrine or any of that stuff. So it's yeah, but it good. is a shrine. I've been there in April and there were lots of candles there because, of course, this is that's the anniversary of Hitler's birthday. I mean, it's really disturbing. And, you, I mean, you can go around, you can find lots and lots of bits of the camouflage netting that were all over his house at the end of the war. Um, that's just everywhere you go. There's bricks and bits of stuff and you can find a bit of the kind of sort of the outdoor veranda patio bit, you know, where they had all the colour photograph of him with Eva Braun and Blondie, the Alsatian yeah. and stuff. You know, those really infamous photographs and film footage. Yeah. You can still see that bit. I mean, you know, it it is absolutely still the remains of a house. I mean, so they haven't destroyed it, destroyed yeah, it. Completely, uh, sort of yeah, trees yeah. grow up through it and all the rest of yeah. it. But it's it's sort of it's sort of macabre and kind of compelling at the same time. It's it's a oh. really weird place. Anyway, well, my family aren't inside. Sounds like having a great break of that <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> I can come. On, we've got to go and see the hit house at some point. And they sort of go, yeah. Can we just? I'll just have another cup of coffee, please. <laughs> 
get out another glass of wine. It's very yeah, funny. Excellent. Oh, how they humour me! But you've been investigating the Maquis, haven't you? Well, I've been yes, I've been I've been in in the Haute Garonne, um, uh, in the south of France, which is sort of staying staying in a little uh, country place, sort of forty five minutes north of the Pyrenees. So I've had a I've had a fun mm. week of basically drinking too much wine and and trying to trying to finish a book. Um, that I'm reading about the about uh, 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 about the end of the war because I've read I've just read that Promise Me You'll Shoot Yourself which ties into a lot of what we're talking How about. How good is that book? It's an amazing book. It's and then really I'm reading, disturbing, isn't it? Yeah, and then I'm reading um, uh, Kershaw's book about called The End, which which yep. ties in with this, the same, which is the more political aspect rather than the sort of personal aspect. Anyway, uh, but so I've been reading those books. But the thing is, is this part of France because it's near the Pyrenees? Is there's there's loads of um, Mackie stuff. And uh, not this trip, but the last time I, 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 I went, we went and looked at the uh, crash site of a Halifax in a, a place called the Peak de Dooley, mm. which is in the Pyrenees, which was from 624 Special Duty Squadron, right? a.k.a. the Black Squadron, who were based in North Africa and would fly supply runs um, and stuff and do that kind of, that kind of black ops stuff into the south of France. And uh, this is this is a, a Halifax that was dropping weapons for the uh, Maki Nistos Esperos in the in the south of France, and they they crashed in the in the in the mountain. And I think, and I might be wrong, uh, certainly that locally they say that it's, it's the highest war grave, highest British war grave in is Europe. Is that so? And there's a plaque, and in the 80s they they put a plaque, and they've since re in recent years they've since sort of re. Um, Revisited the site and everything, so it's one of these things where the plane crashes and then the Mackie, the Mackie have to go find the plane. Yeah, before um, the authorities can. Before the authorities do, and they bury the men in the in the in the um, right. uh, weapons containers, and they get their they get their um you know they get their ID and their jewellery and all that sort of thing, and then have to hide the fact and hide the fact they know, and uh, uh, you know uh, go up into the mountain and do a, a secret mountain trek to find the wreck i mean it's just extraordinary yeah and the, 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 they don't really know why the plane crashed it fogged over or something it was foggy the next day when the Mackie went up into the hills to to find it but wow. you can go there you drive you drive this little windy road and uh, uh and stop halfway up so halfway up one of these you know, enormous Pyrenean mountains, and the, uh, you know the place I've been staying. The the, the Pyrenees are sort of you, you you look over one of the hills and you can see them looming, and they are massive, massive mountains. Which of course, you know, the Tour de France is going through at the had just gone through, and I, I went to see a friend of mine who works on the tour coverage. And you're really we drove up into the mountains, and you're really struck by uh, for the cyclists how brutal that is that they're racing. But if you're trekking up there and then bringing equipment back and bringing you know all this sort of thing. A very very uh, tough landscape is the is the the impression you get. So so there's this little place with this with this grave, and there is wreckage strewn all over it, and they've sort of gathered some of it together. But there's still you know ammunition. You can still casing. see bits, can you? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Wow. It's really it's really amazing, and um, and there isn't a Commonwealth War grave grave there it's a thing they've done them the, the, the locals have done themselves and like i say they sort of revisited it and tidied the site up a, a few years ago and i went i went three four years ago you know you so you park up on the mountainside and then walk sort of 50 minutes yeah. up into the up into the woods into the greenery and then there it is this little clearing how amazing where where the where the where the plane you know sort of epicenter of where the plane crashed 
And and the thing is, is the, the, because up the road on the sixth and seventh of uh, of uh, July, there's a place called Milan, where a um, hundred Mackey gathered in two farmhouses and then were betrayed or rumbled one way or another, and surrounded by the by the local um, Wehrmacht. So, and shelled in shelled to destruction. Seventy six people killed there. Wow. Um, and the, the, the farmhouse is this sort of, it, 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 it's like a mini, mini oridure. So you've got rusted out um, vehicles that were destroyed at the time. And then this... Oh, this, God, I'd love to see that. Yeah, and this, uh, I'll put, well, I'll, we'll put the photos up later because I've got, the, I've got them somewhere on my hard drive. And, the, um, uh, and there's this bat, you know, this relief that someone did sculpture relief of the of the of the Mackie in their berets and one of them's got you know what symbolically his, his sten gun is out yeah. of ammunition but he's fighting on anyway and all this right. all this sort of stuff and i think they 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 held on they held on for like a day and a night and then in the morning uh, were 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 overwhelmed and this you can there's the hillside from where the germans were shelling the farmhouse that you can go and there's a viewpoint there and then you go over the road and you go up the hill and and it's these bomb these shelled out buildings and this this rusted stuff and it's because they did a big they did a big weapons drop around that time as well that the, these these same kind of squadrons for the local Mackey. and there was this constant game of cat and mouse of them being rumbled so it's this and everywhere you go because we, we drew we, we we drove up to a place called uh, Longuevier which, which which where the tour was going right. And there's a there's a lake up there and all sort of thing. But every now and again, you see this thing that says, "Here, here, some um, Makizawa were, were murdered." Right. Little plaques, little signs, uh, because because that's where the that's where they were getting pilots out and people out over the Pyrenees. And there's a story about some guys coming back down and they were caught by the Germans and shot and killed then there and then. So there's this sort of there's this ever present backdrop of uh, of Maki stuff, German reprisal. Yeah. Um, allied uh, uh, attempts to, I mean, it, it attempts to sort of uh, help. And, you know, and organised out of North Af- Africa, which just shows, again, it's the thing we, we've talked about a lot, the deep pockets that the Allied had. The deep had. reach as well. I mean, I suppose... The, yeah, you know, huge you have, you, have exactly same, you find exactly the same things in Italy. You know, all over Northern Italy, there's little signs to kind of, you know... Yeah. Resi- um, to partisans that were killed and stuff, and so actually, just this week, I was um, I was sent a, a memoir by a guy called Yada Mizoraki, who I interviewed maybe fifteen years ago, who'd been a, in the, one of the Garibaldi brigades around Ravenna, and, yeah. and you know he's still part of the AMPI, which is the kind of sort of partisan movement. Um, but these little memorials are all over Italy, and I think it just reminds you, doesn't it, that that you know the reach of the war and and. The, you know, we still think of it in terms of sort of traditional battles, you know, the Allies yeah. landing on Normandy or in North Africa or wherever it might be. But actually, there's all these little, these other bits of violence going on. And of course, you know, a lot of the betrayals, and I wouldn't mind putting good money on the fact that actually the people that betrayed these guys were not Germans, but but other French people. They'll, they'll be yeah. malice, you know. There were there were more malice for much of the time than there were French resistors. And, yeah. uh, and you know, it's civil war going on. And it's the same with... In Italy, um, um, and of course Yugoslavia, which was an absolute mess as well. Yeah, you know, you, all these countries, there was little civil wars going on at the same time as this bigger, more kind of traditional war was going on. And yeah. it does sort yeah. of remind you that. And there's something about there's something about being at these places, isn't there? It's just incredibly kind of emotive. I mean, you know, when I'm here, I mean, obviously Rachel and the, and the kids are not in the slightest bit interested in the fact that this is Nazis <laughs> on the hill. But when I am having my, my sort of egg and bacon, you know, I am sitting there thinking, 
Jesus, you know, I am looking at the same view that Goering was looking at, and I just yeah. can't help but feel kind of profoundly moved by that. It is really, really interesting, and it yeah. just underlines that if you have a passion for something, if you have a passion for history and for a particular period, visiting the ground on where these events took place is really, really rewarding. But by, but by the same token, going up that mountainside uh, where those boys died, yeah, it, it, uh, it, uh, in the middle of the night, in what could you could you could call you could call a sideshow, yeah, or a sideshow on a sideshow. But it's still you know, a it's life, not even, isn't it? It's you know. exactly, and it's their lives lost, and they won't. They, they probably flew into the side of the mountain in the dark. They didn't even know it happened to them. And 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 the the sort of and I think it was a Commonwealth crew, so people from all over the world, and that 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 you've got this, you know, incredibly personal thing that scales up to the size of the war and then back down to yep. the micro to the lad. macro and then exactly and then you know the 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 the, the, the Mackie rest risking their lives to go uh, check the wreckage i mean the whole thing it's uh, fascinating anyway uh, i just think it was pr- full of human drama i do, yeah. do you know what i absolutely love one day in my life it, it, or, or at one point in my life to do that trek across the pyrenees yeah to do the old resistance trail well when you when you've done it you can come uh, cool your in the pool in your pool put in yeah (laughs) (laughs) that will probably never happen at the rate we're going anyway uh, we need to take a short break while James reenacts the cable car scene for Where Eagles Dare don't jump till you're over the water James I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James has dried off nicely in the Bavarian sunshine, which means it's time for your questions, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, uh, now this actually, 
I wanted to ask, this has been bothering me. Um, hello, gents. <laughs> Question from Junior Flinty, age six, who went on holiday in Spain. He's clearly sick of having to have suntan lotion put on every three hours by his mum. But the question is, from, from Dave Hood or Flinty, did the troops in North Africa have to put on sunscreen or just put up and shut up? I, this is a thing that, because you're always seeing pictures of guys stripped to the waist um, uh, in North Africa, you know, um, and, and uh, elsewhere, you know, in hot climes. Did people wear sunblock? Uh, the answer is no. I don't think they did. They didn't have sunblock. They were, and they were told they, you know, it was it was, it was verboten to kind of take your shirt off. Although people did, you weren't supposed to do that because actually getting um, sunburned was helping the enemy. Helping the enemy, yeah, yeah. So you yeah. weren't. So you just had to kind of be really, really careful and just kind of watch it. And you know, people used to wear their sleeves down and all sorts of stuff during the day, and you know, and yet they issued them with shorts. But they did have very long socks. So um, the only bit that was going to get, get really badly sunburned were their knees. knees um, and presumably they did. Um, and, and your face and stuff. But I mean, I mean, if you look at pictures of them, even black and white photos of guys in the 8th Army, you look at them, you just know they're absolutely suntanned yeah. beyond belief. Yeah. And, you know, and obviously yeah. the, the darker you get, the kind of more you're able to resist, uh, you know, and you don't get burnt. It's kind of when you first go out there and you're all sort of white and pasty and fresh from northeast England that you, you, you suffer a little bit. But they also had a very different attitude to hydration as well, didn't they? Because that's the other thing we're told to do in the sun now, isn't it? Is make sure we've all, you go on the tube. Have you got a bottle of water uh, on yeah. you when you're getting on the tube? You think, oh, I'm only going two stops, thanks. But, um, the, the, but the, 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 what did they do? Because I remember... now. The, the, <laughs> Uh, forgive me for using this as a historical source, but in, 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 I remember uh, from my childhood an episode of It Ain't Half Hot Mum where they were all given salt tablets to because uh, they were worried about people losing salt through sweat. And yeah. the salt was... And I remember my dad watching that with my dad and going, oh, yeah, God, this. Because he served in Egypt at one point. Right. That, 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 that For hydration, it wasn't what we do now where basically you drink gallons of water if it's hot. They would be given salt tablets. It's amazing, and, isn't it? Uh, 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 and not lots of fresh water, not lots of uh, lots of water to drink. I mean, it's kind of how, uh, people were made of something else, weren't they? They were like yeah, they really and wiry, were wirier and uh, just, they weren't hench like nowadays. Just tougher, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I remember talking to Carol Mather, who who is actually a bloke, despite being called Carol, and he uh, I suppose it's like Carol Reed, isn't it? But um, the film yeah. director. But anyway, so Carol Mather was in the SAS um, and was um, you know, and he was talking very openly about. You know, doing those long-range, deep penetration missions with the SAS. You know, they'd set off from Cairo. They'd go down to the yep. kind of Gulf Kabir and, um, you know, the Cave of Swimmers and stuff. And um, and then they'd, you know, so they'd, they'd set up a base. And then they'd do quite a long trek before they kind of went and blew up an airfield, you know, an air, a German air ground or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I said, well, what do you do for water? He said, well, water was a problem because, you know, we were always short of it. And we had to have water you know take with us and stuff and it was all a bit disgusting but he said i found that basically what i do is i sort of drink in the morning and um you know drink at night and i just try very hard not to drink during the day much and i said but didn't you get <laughs> didn't you get dehydrated and um he said no not really no no it's fine and of course and then they'd have sort of you know the radiators in their jeeps would run out so they'd all piss in them yeah they'd piss in the radiator mm. yeah, yeah you know I, it, yeah i mean i know I it just didn't seem a problem i mean you know 
Well, but maybe it was because they were all mad bastards. That <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was, but also dry heat, I suppose. But but the but the bottom line back back to sunblock. No, they they just didn't get given sunblock at all. They did have sunglasses, right? They were given sunglasses, and actually, really? the famous the 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 sun visor that that Rommel always used to wear on his peak cap was actually captured off a British officer. I think they were they were coffee um, captured off. Um, a Connor or Neve, I think it was. Yes, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah I yeah, think. Yeah, and a, a, a classic trophy, like yeah, like Mon- Monty then using the the caravans. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I think they just, you know, yeah, I think it was very much put up and shut up. So no factor fifty in Eighth Army. No, and one of the things is that what they also used to do was they used to. Um, they used to clean their clothes with petrol. So what you do is, because there wasn't yeah. enough water for cleaning, you didn't want to get too scuzzy. So they'd just soak their, um, their their shorts or their shirt or whatever with petrol, lie it out in the sun, and then it would be you know good to go and look nice and sort of bleached and weathered as well. Um, so that's how they'd, they'd wash. But, I mean, the conditions of living in the in the desert, I mean, everyone I, I spoke to, I spoke to a lot of people who were sort of eight Army veterans and things, and they used to say, look, you know, you had to kind of embrace it or it yeah. was another enemy and you'd never, you'd, you'd never yeah. win. So you yeah. just had to come to terms with it and accept that it was you know part and parcel of, of your your kind of daily existence and you but just very you cold at night but very cold at night as well so it could be very cold at of, night yeah very cold at night so you've got that weird contrast of of uh, uh the scorching hot days and the cold nights flies i mean all the accounts i've ever read yeah millions flies. and millions and millions it's just flies absolutely everywhere yeah especially on battlefields and then get keeping the flies away from you know from getting into your food and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and apparently that was one of the massive perks of being in the Long Range Desert Group or the SAS, is you just didn't have that problem. Yeah. So yeah. quite dangerous, but, you know. No flies on them, right? Okay. No <laughs> now, Mark Schofield says, who were the most highly trained, toughest unit of World War Two? And this is excluding the team sent uh, in Where Eagles Dare. <laughs> yeah. um, who would you say that with the top highly because we've just talked about the uh, long range desert group the SAS have come up I mean that I always I kind of think when we're talking about things they sort of don't count because it's it's you can you can get 50 blokes and make them in make them in hard as nails easily right can't yep. you? you 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 section them off you spend you you make it exclusive you sp- pick the people you want so you're not wasting time with just regular joes I always because obviously that would you, you could say well it's obviously the SAS or it's the LRDG or it's or it's some I think it's the things on divisional level where you've got to mobilise and motivate a lot of people because I always think you know 101st Airborne Division always come up in these kind of like best ever certainly on the Allied side best ever units um, and people are always very very impressed at the way they fought Normandy and then and then again uh, um, uh, Eindhoven. Yeah, the, the way they kept things going, and um, and the way how well mobilised they were, and how well motivated, and and you know, uh, mission could command if you want, Ausfrag um, Tactique or whatever. I mean, I I'd put them forward myself, hundred first airborne, because I just sort of think, I always think that the, I often think in these, if you're going to talk in this way, this kind of superlative way, that the, the really small specialist units are kind of a red herring. Yeah, and I think also the other thing about units is, is you know, it's, it's more individuals, isn't it? Very, very small mm. groups uh, that are very, very tough. I mean, you know, you would have... I, I remember I remember interviewing a guy extensively called Jupp Klein, who was in the 1st Fallschirmjäger Division, 1st Parachute Division. Yeah. You know, and he'd been on the Eastern Front, he'd been in Sicily, he'd been all through 
you know Monte Cassino when they yeah. arrived in when is it what, late February 40, 40, um, 44 all through the casino battles you know when he spoke to him he was just tough as old boots you know he was he was just you know he's someone you absolutely 100% wanted on your side because yeah. he'd been there done it he he knew every trick in the book he was clever he was sort of he was you know he was canny he was tactically shrewd um he had a sixth sense you know of, of danger coming you know you just you just you come across these people occasionally who are just super tough then you look at the originals from the sas i mean all those guys they're just really hard and what they have is they have a, a thing in common which is they don't really get scared they kind of quite like the whole thing. They're adrenaline junkies. Yeah. Those are the sort of people that would kind of sort of parachute, you know, ski off the edge of a mountain with a parachute. And yeah, stuff there'd, like be, that. there'd be mean, people who'd be, who'd be base jumping now, basically. Yes, exactly. They? You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're just tough as old nails. Again, they've all got that sixth sense. They've kind of really experienced. They're able to use their initiative. But kind of putting that, I mean, you look, you look at the kind of the special raiding squadron as it briefly became known, their attack on, um, on D-Day on Sicily on 10th of July 1943 you know they come off off yeah. boats it's exactly like Pont de Hoc um but without the fuss and, and and you know they and and they just take out this this massive Italian position series of guns just like that and they have one dead and two wounded in two days of fighting and they capture Syracuse I mean it is, yeah. it is absolutely phenomenal uh, you know as a unit of 280 men I, I I reckon you could pit them against anyone in the world and they give you a pretty hard fight but of course, then there are other German units as well that are particularly tough. You know, you're talking about the Derlewanger units. I mean, they're just filthy, mean and tough and horrible. Um, and you wouldn't want to come up against them. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's hard to pinpoint one specific unit. But what you really want is a combination of people who are motivated, um, intelligent, um, uh, astute, uh, and, and able to use that, and capable of leadership, and and able able and physically capable of leading tough, themselves, physically yeah. really hard. You know, who are yeah. able to sort of endure pain and and hardship, and and sort of shrug it off. And those people do exist. So, if we were going to do like a World War Two top trumps, yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously size of unit. I think 101st Airborne would still beat your crack unit of 200 because there's like thousands of them. Yeah, yeah, there are. Well, yeah, there's like. <laughs> 10,000 of them <laughs> exactly but they've got lots of new recruits coming in all the time who probably wouldn't yeah. be that good yeah yeah okay all right okay all right i'll let you have that right okay. now so anyway jimmy gregory says after a twitter conversation on the same subject which would you prefer to do land by landing craft on a heavily defended beach or swoop down into action in a fully laden glider thanks jimmy well what would you say james well i'd, I'd obviously i'd like to do neither um but i think on on <laughs> yeah neither's high on my list <laughs> no. um I think the glider, probably. And it depends also, you know, land by landcraft in the first wave on a defended beach or kind of, you know, a couple of hours later when it's not well, quite I think so we well have defended. To, well, you have to I see if it's not defended first Well, yes, because if you're, are you first lift, are you first lift on D-Day in the middle of the night or are you second lift at nine o'clock in the evening? Yeah, I think I'd go for the former. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I think it's glider, isn't it? I think we're going gliders. Yeah, definitely. We? I mean, it's yeah. not foolproof. I mean, the thing is... Although they're not foolproof, and of course it depends which which landing we're talking about. Because if it's Sicily, and uh, you're in a Waco <laughs> that the pilot doesn't know how to fly, and he puts you yeah. in the ocean and it yeah. sinks, um, and only I four out of 144 actually make it to the drop zone. Yeah, exactly. Then I'll on pass, balance, I'll... probably I'll go for the landing craft. Yeah, because yeah, against exactly. the heavily so defended Italians, it's kind of less of a threat. <laughs> so Sicily, you're going landing craft, but D-Day, you're going glider. Yeah. 
Um, what about so let's go to Holland then, and they're not simultaneous, but like or, or the or the Lowlands. So a Landingcraft of the Welcheren assault, or a, or a glider at Arnhem. Hmm. God, there's really not much in it, is there? No, there's not much. Well, what about Anzio? Glider, like, Anzio, that was pretty, gl- pretty okay. Anzio, I'd go, go uh, yeah, for that. Anzio. The first, right. I mean, the foot glider... The Guadalcanal, glider that, that was easy. Yes, if you want. <laughs> well, the landing I re- bit. I read, a, I read a fascinating thing about... Um, about um, oh, God, which book was it? I can't remember. About how um, in the run-up for D-Day, they get in... Um, uh, someone from the Pacific is brought in. Right. Um, to talk about amphibious landing. Yeah. And uh, he says, why are you using wooden landing craft? What the hell are you doing? Right? Are you, are you nuts? <laughs> why would you use, why not, why are you not using, uh, uh, st- you know, metal Still, boats? Yeah. Um, and they basically said, they basically treated me as like, um, like the, the amiable heck from, uh, from the sideshow. And what could he possibly know about amphibious landings? And there was, there was very little, um, you know, cross fertilization or whatever, yeah. the, what the, or, or whatever the word would be. Well, that's because the, the South Pacific is flipping miles away. It's the other side of the world. Yeah. Yeah. But it's fascinating that, that, that he turns up and says, you know, wooden landing craft, that, are you, are you crazy? Yeah. And they're like, oh, shut up. What do you know? Wow. And so he's just completely ignored. I, I don't. Yeah. I, I presume it's just it is ease of manufacture, isn't it? Yeah. Well, probably. Yeah. Or uh, yes, and deadlines and all that sort of thing. Because because there is a landing craft shortage in the run up to D Day anyway, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Brian Williams, um, uh, who uh, I see a lot actually pops up a lot on my Twitter feed. If you were selecting a team to to go on a do or die mission against an impregnable Nazi base, who would you pick among your followers, and what would their special skills be? <laughs> of course if it's a proper war movie their special skill is also their flaw like the blind forger in the great escape or the <laughs> <laughs> yeah i definitely want to be armed with, with um, mp40s with with unending um, never-ending yeah, magazines yeah you'd, yeah you'd want to go to uh, clint eastwood's quartermaster and pick up one of those magazines <laughs> <laughs> definitely well i would definitely want um paddy main i definitely want um um What's his name? Um, Johnny Cooper. Yeah. Peter um, Fleming. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, him. I definitely want George Jellico, who's right. just completely amazing and just never seems to. Uh, I mean, he just thought the whole war was just a total lark. I mean, it was sort of boys, girls yeah. with guns. And yeah. um, Americans, who would I want? Well, I probably would want Dick Winters, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, people yeah. like that. You'd Jim Woolwalk to fly the guider. Yeah, you would. You definitely would. <laughs> Um, you, want, mean, you want you want many... a bit of air support, so you want some pretty good pilots. Don Blakesley yeah, would well, be good, so, or Gibson, yeah, Gibson, Gibson and yeah, or Leonard Cheshire, Cheshire Leonard Cheshire, yeah, Leonard yeah. Cheshire. He's I a, mean, the thing yeah. is, is how many how many missions against impregnable Nazi bases were there? Because I mean, if you watch Wolf, if you watch World War Two, they happen all the time. They happen all the time. But if you if you look at reality, they never happened. <laughs> 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 I mean, there was a, there was a, there was the a plan to go and assassinate. <laughs> there was a plan to go and assassinate Kesselring at Taormina in Sicily. Yeah, and uh, they were going to send in a submarine, and they were going to use HMS Upholder because the the captain David Wanklin had been um, he'd honeymooned there um, just before the war, so he knew it. So they were going to send in a sort of commander, and then there was a then there was the raid on Rommel, wasn't there? But all of these were cancelled. Then there was the one that guy Damien Lewis has just written a book about. Uh, mm. about the the mission to go and blow up um, von Weitinghoff, I think it was, in um, in northern Italy. 
and that never happened either because it moved i mean you know and also the position wasn't that impregnable anyway yeah um, so you know you, you they sort of but yeah i mean I mean, it's anthropoid of course but that's not an impregnable nazi base is it that's knocking off a really guy, evil bastard yeah yeah yeah, I mean, because it, because it, it's because there were, the, I mean, because the Americans did a hit on um, uh, Yamamoto, didn't they? Where they sent yes, they did. Light, they killed him. Yeah, they killed him. Where they sent April lightnings. 40, Forty-two. Yeah, yeah, special forty-three. Robert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The special lightnings, didn't they? They yeah. sent out ultra decoded. Um, they they they, they decoded him. They knew it and they knew he was he was flying and they they absolutely shot him down. And they 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 yeah. found his body and he was still absolutely perfectly yeah. sat upright in his seat. Yeah, it's an amazing story. It that. is an amazing and, story. Um, and uh, uh, and. There was there was distaste within within the American uh, command, wasn't there, about doing it because it was yeah. like it was putting a hit on someone, basically. Yeah. And then of course, then of course, the pilots involved when they got back argued about who'd actually shot him down. Yeah. I did it. No, you didn't. I yeah, did no, it. Didn't. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah it was all right by Bill Halsey. It is an amazing yeah. story. An actual fact. Um, I've got a. Um, I'm doing this whole series of new Ladybird books. They're not ironic, though. They're they're supposed to be um, they're supposed yeah. to be serious. Um, yeah, and there's this amazing artist called Keith Burns who does all the artwork for it. Um, and the penultimate page of my Pacific War 1941 to 1943 Ladybird book is a picture of Yamamoto getting assassinated. Although he, obviously it's plain, you don't actually see him being assassinated. Yeah. But um, I'll show you the picture because it's absolutely fantastic. Of these P-38s homing in on it. Brilliant. So right. There you go. Um, now we have another question. Richard Quance, do you want to read this one out, James? Uh, yeah, so this one comes from Richard Quance. Uh, great pod chaps. Thank you, Richard. Good As a style. Brit now living in Australia, it surprised me to learn that the Japanese bombing of Darwin, something my European-centred World War II knowledge had blinded me to. Do you think Japan was ever serious about invading Australia? Well, um, yes. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. What it wanted was it wanted to separate the United States from Australia. That yeah. was the key whole thing and that was why they were going down into the solomon islands and going yep. on to sort of new guinea it was to kind of have this the whole point about the the japanese effort was not that they would ever completely defeat the united states what they were realizing was that they were rapidly growing a rapidly growing urban population that couldn't feed itself it was running out of resources was thinking well we're roughly the same size of britain and look how britain's done it it's just gone around the world yep. having this sort of huge empire which which it gets its resources from why can't we have that yeah. Um, and and the reason is is because Britain and America and the Dutch have already got it. So let's take it back off them. And the first plan is to go into China, which is just across the sea and is, has got endless resources. But they get bogged down and, and it doesn't work. And actually, resistance from the Chinese is, is after sort of initial um, uh, victories for the Japanese, it gets stiffer and stiffer and stiffer. And they kind of run out of steam and they're running out of supplies and they've got to find mm. it elsewhere. So the, the plan is is to try and do a lightning strike that will cripple the US Navy. Um, and knock it out of the war for a long enough period um, for the Japanese to then take all that territory, take the resources, and be strong enough to resist whatever the Americans then throw at them. And eventually yeah. they have a kind of settled peace where they have a yeah. new kind of economic block uh, and a Pacific block of which they're the kind of top dogs. That was yeah. the plan. The fatal flaw in the whole thing was uh, Pearl Harbor. None of the three aircraft carrier, which the Japanese absolutely correctly identified mm. as the new preeminent um, capital ship on the seas were actually at Pearl Harbor. So they, they destroyed lots of, um, of of battleships, which was, you know, I, I guess a good thing if you're Japanese. Um, but the really key targets were the battleships, and they failed to get those. So 
it still did give them a little bit of breathing space and they kind of, you know, and they rushed off and went into Hong Kong and Singapore and Malaya and Burma and, you know, New Guinea and but all even, but, but even had they sunk those aircraft carriers, even if the aircraft carriers had been present, that wouldn't have knocked America out of the war. It just would have... It wouldn't have knocked them out of the war, but it would have given... I think, taken I them think, longer. Yeah, but I don't think Midway would have happened if they knocked out those... You know, Midway right. happened in June. The Coral Spanish yeah, Coral Sea in all May. Happened a, all happened a year later. Yes, but if you think, yeah, so so Midway is six months after Pearl Harbor in June 1942. Uh, I don't think Midway would have happened at that point. And what that would have also meant is that then they probably wouldn't have been able to get, a, the Americans have wouldn't have been able to get a foothold on Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands, yeah. which is just off the kind of, sort of north eastern top of Australia. It's a, a, And New mm. Guinea is very close to Darwin. Um, and I think what would have happened is is America probably wouldn't have been able to get onto Guadalcanal, the only place where you could have an airfield there, at that point, which would have meant the Japanese would have continued their construction of their airfield, completed it, and made it a, probably a pretty impregnable base. So I think yeah. everything would have been different. I think ultimately the Americans would have still have prevailed, um, and the yeah. Allies, of course, because there were lots of, sort of British and Australians involved as well. But um, I think it would have taken an awful lot longer. But to come back to Australia, I mean, the, 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 in Australia, and, and we still haven't talked about uh, Jonathan Fennell's book, we will at some point, there's the really interesting thing about how Australian morale and involvement in the war fluctuates wildly yeah. between kind of um, uh, ambivalence and then we might, we're about to be invaded, so super self-defence. Yeah. And, and, and the Darwin bombing very much plays into the latter category that, that Australia is threatened because up to that it, there's this kind of abstract thing in Australia it's a war happening generally in Europe and then it starts in the Pacific but it's a long way away it doesn't involve them the Americans the Americans don't really want the Australians involved militarily and you get these sort of you get this sort of um, high watermarks where Australia looks like it's under threat and so the war effort goes into sort of overdrive and then it falls away um, uh, when the threat recedes, yeah, which I think which, which is really interesting. So the Darwin bombing is a sort of catalytic moment in Australian politics for getting for taking the war more seriously. Yeah, so, I think I that's true. And then you've you've got and then you've got Japanese subs in Sydney Harbour as well at one point, haven't you? And that and yes, that you have. causes a, that causes a similar kind of panic. Well, not panic. I mean, a, a actual re- well, just outrage, full blown reaction. Um, uh, uh, but I don't, yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that they were. I mean, they were, were the Japanese were serious about invading Australia if they could have if if, if if they could have achieved it. But they knew they couldn't achieve it. They were well. The I whole think the point is, is that permanently. But I think they could have. They they might well have sort of gone on to Darwin and taken a chunk of it. I mean, the point yeah. you know, if it had been so, I think they have a they have a clear a pretty clear thought through strategy. Mm. But that is um, kind of reinforced by opportunistic strategy yeah, yeah. so there's, there's the strategy is to take the solomons and and new guinea and new britain and, and create that kind of barrier that link that 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 shipping link and flying link between yeah. australia and hawaii and, and the pacific edge of of the united states yeah but if there are other things along the way that can further enhance that position such as getting into north uh, northern yeah. um australia i think they would have done yeah. Okay. Right. Now, Andy Hogben asks, what did you make of the Nazi gold train rumours that were flying around a year or two back? Uh, not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, everyone's always looking for the kind of El Dorado of World War Two, don't they? I mean, mm. you know, people have been sort of scouring lakes in, in Austria for ingots of Nazi gold. People have been looking for the for the amber room taken from St. Petersburg. Yeah. 
um, and that's probably at the bottom of the Baltic. Um, they've been looking for Spitfires in Burma, and it's just something that just fires people's imagination, isn't it? That sort of, you yeah. know, it's the old fashioned sort the of treasure of hunting. But that is all it is. But what is amazing is the gullibility and, and frankly, stupidity of people that they're prepared to spend, you know, millions of quid or certainly hundreds of thousands of quid in kind of researching stuff that has yeah. just zero chance of. Of ever, ever coming to anything. I mean, the, the Spitfire one in Burma was amazing, wasn't it? Because, yeah. you know, huge expeditions were being mounted and all this. And as everyone pointed out, you know, even if they were there, you know, it's one of the wettest places in the entire planet. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and despite being covered in grease and packed up and the rest of it, the idea that you would unearth, I mean, the wood wouldn't be there anyway. That would have just rotted. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah. wouldn't be much left of the planes. The idea that you'd, you'd find them, they'd all be perfect condition. You'd, you'd literally a couple of bolts and they'd be good to fly back to Blighty. I yeah. mean, it's just yeah. just nonsense. Well, also, but, but, but the, the idea that the RAF would have been burying Spitfires at that point in the war is what? Well, why would you? Why would you? It's totally harebrained. It yeah, yeah, it but the effort. Do, do, do anyone understand the effort involved in getting a Spitfire to Burma? I mean, it's yeah. just absolutely enormous. It's quite interesting because um, I know Seb Cox a little bit. I think you know as well. He's um, a colleague mm. of Sebastian Richard. Well, he's the head of the Air yeah. um, Historical yeah. Branch. Uh, and back in, I think it was 1997, they were, they'd were they heard these rumours and they were asked to um, evidence. And he said they couldn't find any proof at all that the Spitfire, these 10 Spitfires, or whatever it was, yeah. uh, this squadron of Spitfires had ever been sent to Burma. And they're saying it's not impossible that they were sent to Burma, but they said to put this in some context, we know... The um, about every single plane that was sent <laughs> to Southeast Asia Command. So for them to be there, they would have to be the exception to the rule, and they are yeah. the most expensive and valuable planes that we're sending over there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In other no, words, it's, it's nonsense. It's and they were told nonsense. that back in 1997, and yet, you know, in 2011 or 2010 or whenever it was, David Cameron was going, I think it's marvellous that we're going to have a spot, Spitfire Squadron to come all the way back from Burma. I mean, what a knob. <laughs> And on that note, James, we need to let you go. There's a mountain. <laughs> there's a mountain top for you to. Scale. Well, I am. I am actually about to scale the peaks of the Kalstein House, the Eagle's Nest. So Rachel, who's still got a slightly dicky knee, she's going to um, head up <laughs> on the bus. But um, me and Ned and Daisy are going to walk it. Wonderful, wonderful. Right. Uh, well, that's all we've got time for. Thanks, James. Yeah. No. Lovely to lovely to chat as always. And thanks for listening, everyone. Cheerio. See you next time. Yep. Don't forget, you can see us live at the Edinburgh Festival, 7th of August. Please do get in touch on Twitter using the hashtag WeHaveWays. Auf Wiedersehen. Yep, auf Wiedersehen to you.